If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts 20. If you need a Bible, wave at your friend Bud. We are having a baptism this morning, obviously. The only alternative explanation being something to do with livestock. But before we baptize, we're going to spend some time in God's Word. We're going to try to move the ball a little bit further down the field in our ongoing study through the life of Paul, a study that we've been calling the Footsteps of Paul, because we're following him, we've been following him, since his salvation through his first, second, and we're up to his third missionary journey, jumping out of the book of Acts where we, where we get the through line of his life, jumping out to the various epistles that he wrote at his various stops along the way. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, and then we're going to get to the baptism. And I have to, I have to I'll be honest, I love to teach God's word, but I have to force myself to do it this morning, because baptism is like my favorite thing. It is one of the most joyful events in the life of a believer, and it's one of our greatest privileges, both, both to participate in and to witness. Looking ahead to the baptism, it, it's important that we have a right understanding of that. Baptism doesn't save. I hope that we all know that. Baptism isn't necessary for salvation. It's important. It's an important witness. It's an important part of our testimony. If it wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have commanded us to do it. But it isn't essential for salvation. If it were, you can, you can prove that a few different ways. One is that if it were, Paul probably wouldn't have made a point of saying, I didn't come to baptize, which he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I didn't come to baptize. I'm glad I didn't baptize more or you would have gotten the wrong idea about my ministry. If baptism is necessary for salvation, that would make no sense because Paul would be saying, well, I'm glad more of you didn't get saved. (laughs) Baptism doesn't save is the point. But it is a public declaration that we've been saved, that we are saved, that our sin has been washed away, that we're risen with Christ, new creations in him, every one of us who call upon his name. At Calvary, we baptize by immersion. Around 9 p.m. last night, Rob was wishing that we didn't because the first tank that we got leaked and we were swapping it out. But we baptize by immersion. Not all tribes do. Other tribes have other traditions, like, like with the other ordinance that Jesus gave us, uh, gave us communion. We, when, when we celebrate communion, most typically we do it with matzah and grape juice. Other churches, you, you, you might have wine and, and a loaf of bread being passed around. Other tribes, other traditions. Our tribe is, is probably best known for the study of God's word. I mean, we're known for a lot of things. Most good. But we're probably best known for verse-by-verse exegetical teaching. And if we exegete the word for baptism, for baptize, and especially as we compare that word as it appears in Scripture with other places that it appears, we notice something interesting. You might have come across this story before. It has its roots 150 years before Jesus is born. It concerns a man named Nicander. Most, if you you look him up online, you'll find out that he was a poet, he was a doctor, and he was a grammarian. He was a teacher of grammar. He also, fun fact, wrote the earliest surviving writing we have on the subject of poison. That's an illustration of his writing. At some point in his life, though, when he wasn't writing poetry, when he wasn't practicing medicine, when he wasn't studying poison, 
he wrote out a recipe for pickles. And this is a, and it's pretty similar to the recipe my mom used when I was growing up, and it was always at this time of year when it's already stinking hot. So what do you do? Turn on all the burners in the kitchen. <laughs> but, but, the, but the recipe involved first dipping a cucumber or other vegetable. You, you locked your door, by the way, the doors to your car in the parking lot, I hope. If you didn't lock your doors, you might want to run out and somebody might put a bag of cucumbers on the front seat of your car. It's that time of year. <clears throat> so Nikander's recipe, first dip the cucumber into the boiling water and then immerse it in vinegar and seal it up. What does this have to do with anything? When Nikander wrote out his recipe, he used two different words, two different verbs to describe the process. The dipping in the boiling water, dip it in, take it out, he used the Greek word bapto, because he was writing in Greek. For the immersion in vinegar, putting it there and having it stay there, he used the word baptizo. And the thing that's interesting is every time we read about baptism or baptizing in the New Testament, every time the word appears, it's baptizo, which makes sense if you think about it, because we're not dipped in Christ, are we? When we're saved, we're not splashed with Christ in a way that's going to wipe off or dry up. We're immersed in Christ, soaked in Christ, saturated with Christ, forever changed by Christ. So take this idea and run with it. Bite into a pickle, what do you taste? Cucumber, not so much. Bite into a pickle, it tastes more like vinegar, right? Or dill, garlic, pepper, whatever, whatever the cucumber or other vegetable is soaked in, it tastes like. It tastes like whatever it's been immersed in. And in very much the same way, we should have the flavor of Christ because when we come to Christ, we're immersed in him, saturated with him, forever changed by him. And again, water baptism doesn't do that. Water baptism is a picture of that. It's an image. It's a symbol. It's, it's a declaration. This is who I am. This is what's happened and it's a blessing to get to celebrate that with those who will be baptized later this morning. Before we do, like I said, though, I want to take a few minutes to, to move the ball down the field in our study of the life of Paul. A man who did not baptize many, by his own admission, but one who was undeniably immersed in Christ, right? Forever changed by Jesus. Every time we see him, Every week in our study, we see Paul's life had the flavor of Christ. And this morning, Paul's going to tell us, so should ours. When we left off last Sunday, Paul was in Troas. Wrapping up his third missionary journey, he's headed back home. He's made it this far. Originally, he was hoping to be back by Passover, we surmise from the text, but then he finds out people are trying to kill him, so he ends up making a slight detour, and we talked about that in detail last week. He ends up meeting up with his team in Troas, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, and other representatives of the Gentile churches who have contributed to the offering that Paul is carrying back to Jerusalem uh, to help people affected by famine, to help those afflicted by persecution. 
Not much happens in Troas. They, they meet up there. Um, I mean, I guess uh, Eutychus was raised from the dead. But other than that, not much happened. So that was last week. From there, let's press forward and we'll switch maps. Verse 13, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So the team sails around the point there, up to Assos, but Paul walks, which isn't a big deal. Um, It's a paved road, 20 miles or so, one long day's hike. Romans were great at building roads, and that was one of them. Why is he on foot while everyone else is sailing? We don't know. Was he still suspecting danger from the assassination plot? Maybe. Did he have a friend that he wanted to meet along the way? Perhaps. Did he want some time alone with God? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But when they get there, verse 14, they reconnect. When he met us, when Paul met the rest of the team at Assos, we took him on board and came to Middling another 30 miles away. So Middling, the biggest city on the Isle of Lesbos. Next, verse 15, we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios, which is an island about eight miles off of the coast there. Chios is is the birthplace of Homer, for those of you classical students. The following day, we arrived at Samos, another island, and stayed at Tregillium. Samos down there, birthplace of Aesop, of Aesop's fables, also the birthplace of Pythagoras. So you have Samus to thank for A squared plus B squared equaling C squared. And then, same verse, we came to Miletus. Now, Miletus is the southernmost city that that had a Greek character, the southernmost city of Greek culture in the province of Asia. Ephesus isn't on the map, but Miletus is about 36 miles south of Ephesus. Why this route? Why does Paul bypass Ephesus, a city where he spent more than two years? Luke tells us, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Couldn't make it for Passover, wants to make it if possible for Pentecost. He's bypassing Ephesus specifically because he knows so many people there. He has so many friends. He has such deep connections. He knows that if he shows up there, it, it, it will be forever getting back on the road. He's, he's worried. Let me translate this into Wichita terms. He's worried about the Kansas goodbye. <laughs> the one that starts off with, well, guess we should be going. <laughs> At which point, oh, thanks for coming, but I forgot to tell you. And there's a whole other conversation. And then that conversation is done, well, and it's time for hugs and it's time for handshakes. But walking to the door, another subject comes up. And, and while that conversation goes on, that's long enough for people to realize you're not, you, you need to take home some leftovers. Or, or you need to take home the Tupperware that you brought something in. And so then everybody moves to the kitchen. And after, after the conversation in the kitchen, it's another move for the door. But on the way, wait, kids, you didn't say goodbye. Kids, come down. You've got to say goodbye to the kids. They're going to be, and, and, and so finally you make it out the door, and, 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 and on the way to the car, you turn around because this is the Midwest. The last thing you got to say is thank you, but as soon as you say thank you, you open the, no, thank you, and, and let's figure out when we can do this again, and everybody's got their calendar out. <laughs> At which point you make it to the car, but the people are still following you, and the conversation continues until heat or cold or mosquitoes or something finally, finally separates you. Paul, Paul wanted to avoid all that. 
So he bypasses Ephesus. Except then he realizes that he can't. Because he has those deep friendships, those, those, those relationships of, of many years. And he has a burden for the church that, that he helped plant, that he served at for more than two years. So verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. How did this work? We're not sure. Either, either the ship was going to stay there for a couple days anyway. At which point Paul says, okay, if I'm going to be this close, I've, I've got to connect with them one more time. Or maybe the burden was just so much that he pulls a favor with the captain. Look, can, you, can I slip you a couple bucks? Can you stay in port for a couple days? i got a thing I want to do. Either way, verse 18, when they'd come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Paul just say? If we encapsulate it, if we summarize it, Paul just said, the whole time I was with you, I demonstrated to you, I proved to you that I was immersed in Christ. And this fits so well on a morning where we're baptizing because it reminds us baptism isn't the end of anybody's story. It shouldn't even be the high point of anybody's journey. It's a celebration of the beginning of a life like Paul's life. A life saturated with the Holy Spirit. A life immersed in Christ. A life given over to serving God. That sound you hear is your flesh saying, run away, run away now. Get out of here. You're not Paul. You're not an apostle. You're not called to ministry. Our flesh wants to say that. Our flesh does say that. Our flesh is wrong. Because what is Paul saying here? in his final message to friends and co-laborers that he has no reasonable expectation of ever seeing again. His final words to those who will lead the church after he leaves has nothing to do with miracles, has nothing to do with church planting. There's nothing really apostolic here. He's just saying again what he says so often Follow me as I follow Christ. Live like me as people who, just like me, have been immersed in Christ and fulfill his calling on your life. Be witnesses. That's his calling on every one of our lives. Be witnesses. Continue where Jesus left off in his earthly ministry. Seek out the lost like that they might be saved. Baptism. When, when someone asks me to give a succinct explanation of, of what baptism is, I usually say something like, baptism is an outward expression of an inward transformation that happened when we believed. It's an outward declaration of an inward transformation. And the thing about it is that outward declaration isn't supposed to stop. It's supposed to continue through our lives. 
Just like a pickle immersed in vinegar is sealed in the jar and not taken out, so we are immersed in Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit for as long as we're here. To know Him and to make Him known. That's our ministry. That's our calling. As we know Him, we take on His flavor. We take on His character. And that in turn compels us to share Him. To share the love that we found in Jesus. All of us. If you're a Christian, you are a fully certified, qualified, sealed ambassador of Jesus. No matter who you are. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 12, are all apostles? And and, and he asks rhetorically, are all apostles? No. Are all evangelists? No. Are all pastor teachers? No. 1 Corinthians 12, 29, Paul says we're not. But who are we? Every one of us, who are we? New creations in Christ. People who decided to follow Jesus. And we're here to tell the world how they can be as well. Acts 8, verse 4. The early church was scattered. What the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. Persecution came against the early church. People ran in every direction. And as they ran, as they traveled, as they scattered, they brought the gospel with them. Regardless of gifting, regardless of calling, regardless of where they found themselves, people immersed in Jesus shared Jesus everywhere they went, just like we should, just like we can. That's Paul's point this morning. How do we do that? Paul just told us. In exhorting the the Ephesian church, Paul just exhorted us. Let's rewind and replay, starting in the middle of verse 18. We're immersed in Jesus. What does that mean? How do we share Jesus who has saturated us? Middle of verse 18, Paul says, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. What manner is that, Paul? Serving the Lord with all humility. How do we share Jesus? With humility. No one likes to know it all. No one enjoys being talked down to. We're here to share Jesus without condescension. We're here to share Jesus in prayerful consideration of the person that we're talking to. Who are they? What makes them them? How can I connect with them? How can I appeal to them? Our model in this is Jesus, right? Who did what in sharing himself with us? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us as a man. And multiple reasons for that. He had to be a man to die. Shed blood is required for remittance of sin. But there was another reason as well. Jesus became a man and tabernacled among us so that he could speak to us face to face. He incarnated. He became like us because he wanted us to hear the things that he had to say to us. I serve the Lord with all humility. Let's keep moving. With many tears. How do we share Jesus? We share Jesus with compassion. And that that, that gets to probably the greatest barrier to sharing Jesus. Why don't we share Jesus more? Why don't we share our faith more? It's probably because we don't spend very much time thinking about the lost. Thinking about those who don't know Jesus and what's going to happen to them in eternity. 
We don't spend a lot of time thinking about an eternity of suffering for those who die apart from Jesus because it's not a pleasant thought. So we don't think it. Except Paul thought it all the time. What did Paul say to the Romans? Romans 9 verse 3, he says, I'd gladly spend eternity in hell if that's what it took for Israel to be saved. Rescuing souls from hell, having compassion on the lost, that informed every aspect of Paul's life. It guided every decision that he made. He lived to share Jesus that people might be rescued from hell. With many tears and trials which happened to me. And, and Paul here specifically references the persecution that happened at the hands of Jewish leaders, the riots and so forth that drove him from Ephesus. But those weren't the only trials Paul faced. From, from the time that he was saved. Paul, we think, was a Pharisee at the time he was saved. That means that he loses friends, loses social standing, loses wealth and property, probably loses his marriage. But that's just, that's just the beginning of trials because his dedication to the gospel cost him more every day, cost him health, sleeplessness, thirst, hunger is how he describes his ministry. He's jailed, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's physically beat up, he's emotionally beat up, preaching the gospel to people who don't want to hear it, preaching the gospel to people who throw rocks at his head because he speaks it. Later in his ministry, he writes about being betrayed by those who were closest to him. Paul lived a life for Jesus that was altogether unsafe. And for what? What justified that kind of dedication? If you ask Paul, he would have said, if only one person can be rescued from hell, it's worth it. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, keeping back nothing that was helpful. It took dedication for Paul to just stay on the mission field, to keep moving from place to place and do the ministry that God called him to in every place that he brought him. Sharing the gospel, planning churches, but I, I, there had to be part of Paul that was just longing to go home, right? to be among friends, to be someplace familiar, to feel safe for just a little while. But not only did Paul have the dedication to stay on the mission field, his life was one of continual exertion wherever he found himself. He wasn't just taking advantage of opportunities that, that God dropped in his lap to share Jesus. He was looking for opportunities. He was continually praying for opportunities, seeking opportunities, cultivating opportunities to share Jesus. Second Timothy, Paul says, the life of a believer is like the life of a farmer, an athlete, and a soldier. Diligence, in other words, hardworking, obedient, tireless, never letting up. Does that mean we never rest? No, rest is biblical. We need to rest more, not less. As Americans, we're bad at rest. But we also have a bad concept of rest. Because our idea is, I need to finish my ministry so that I can go have some me time. I need to finish serving so that I can rest. The, the Bible's perspective on rest is, I need to rest, I need to recharge, I need to be revived so I can continue serving, so I can continue sharing Jesus. Kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you. Paul had unwavering conviction that truth is something real and knowable. The Bible is relevant and useful. God is righteous and perfect in justice. Salvation is a requirement. It's necessary for us to escape eternal judgment. But Jesus came to rescue us. 
He came to die in our place so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be reborn. Paul believed those things. He declared those things. But he says something else. He also says that he explained those things. He was ready, as Peter would later say, to give a reason for the hope that was within him. And that's not hard to do, it turns out. To prove that that truth is real, that truth is absolute and not relative, that the Bible is the word of God, that God is righteous, that salvation is necessary, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. These things are actually not difficult to demonstrate. Are we ready for the conversation? Are we prepared? Are we preparing for the conversation? A lot of people don't, and a lot of people don't because they think to themselves, if I'm ready to have the conversation, then God might send people to me to have the conversation, and I'm not sure that I want to. So if I don't get ready, I won't be used in that way. Except that's why we're here. We're here to share Jesus, and we should want to do it well. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. I taught you publicly and from house to house. I read an interesting article about evangelism this week. And it was a compare-contrast kind of a thing, talking about declaring the gospel, proclaiming it, street evangelism kind of stuff, versus sharing the gospel, friendship evangelism, relationship evangelism. And the article pointed out relationship evangelism is often criticized because it doesn't get to the heart of the gospel. I'm building a bridge, I'm making a connection to share the gospel, but I never get around to sharing the gospel. Gospel proclamation, on the other hand, declares the gospel, but sometimes doesn't get to the heart of the person. The article ended up where Paul ends up here. Paul says, I taught you publicly, but I also taught you from house to house, relationally. To share Jesus in this world, we need to do both. We need to make connections to people, but we need to do so making, you know, hoping that they're going to make a connection to God, helping them make a connection to God. We need to get past our, our four spiritual laws, our way of the maker, our, you know, whatever our preferred way of sharing the gospel is, to learn someone's name. <laughs> but we also have to get past their name and their life to get to the name of Jesus. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks. This is pretty straightforward. Paul shared Jesus with everyone, without discrimination. People who liked him, people who hated him. People with a lot, he, you know, people he had things in common with, people he had nothing in common with. People who treated him well, people who wanted him dead. Because in Paul's eyes, those categories didn't exist. In his mind, we're all part of the same category. We're all souls Jesus died for. And if Jesus died for all souls, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free, on what basis do we possibly pick and choose? There's no one who doesn't need to hear about the love of Jesus. There's no one with whom we shouldn't share Jesus. And in sharing Jesus, what people need to hear, final point, is how they can be saved by him. It's great that Jesus lived, and we should talk about that. It's awesome that he lives in our hearts, and we get to tell that story. But the gospel, the reason that Jesus came, has to take us to the cross. 
Has to, has to take us to the blood. Has to take us to the offer Jesus makes. Give me your sin. And I'll pay the punishment for it. And I'll give you all of my righteousness. And all of my inheritance and the future that comes with it. We've got to take the conversation to the conclusion Repentance toward God, Paul says, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-evangelism is, 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 a, is a fairly new word because 20, 30 years ago it was much less necessary. But so much of our society in the last 20 years has, has hardened people against the idea that there is such a thing as truth, that good and evil are real, that God exists. That sin is, is a thing. Softening the ground with conversations on those topics is sometimes really important, sometimes very fruitful in preparing someone to hear the gospel. It's also important that people see the reality of the gospel expressed in the love that Jesus has given us to share. The love that he teaches us, the love with, that, that, that he pours into us, the love that overflows from us, that's essential. Without that, our words have no credibility. How, how can we reasonably expect someone to buy into a gospel of love if we, if we ourselves aren't loving? But all of that said, for the gospel to be the gospel, we've got to connect past to future. We've got to tell people explicitly how to be saved. Turn from the road you're on. Repent of sin and turn to God who sent us on to die on the cross. And we've said often, those, those, those are two halves of the same thing. If I'm going this way and I want to turn to God, of necessity I repent of my sin. I turn away from my sin. Turning from and turning to. You know these things, Paul says to the Ephesians. You know these things. You've seen these things. This is who I've been among you. Why is Paul saying that? So that he can go on to say, and boy, are you going to miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> Not many people like me. No, Paul is reminding his friends once more before he sets sail, you know these things, you've seen these things, you can be these things. You can be like me because, because you are like me, immersed in Jesus. That's God's hope, God's hope for all of us. It, it's God's plan for all of us, that we would be like Paul and keep being like Paul. Letting Christ guide us. Letting the flavor of Jesus in us influence the people around us. It's God's hope and plan for us. And it's our prayer for our brothers and sisters who are going to come forward now and declare their immersion in Jesus with immersion in water this morning.